off a little bit. I'm delighted to be chairing this discussion. As I said, I'm Jacob Reynolds. I'm the Partnerships Manager at the uh, Academy of Ideas, where during the pandemic, we've been trying our best to make sure that even whilst uh, physical life might be subject to restrictions, that intellectual life doesn't get locked down as well. Um, and in fact, I guess that ambition is quite especially relevant to tonight's discussion, Conquering COVID, Is There a Better Way? Um, where I think we can all recognize that in an era of the culture wars, moral and political discussions have been uh, especially difficult and this is, and been especially fractious and this is sort of no different. It's true, especially around the debates around COVID with people who question the lockdowns on the one side being branded as deniers and those who defend them often being dismissed as dupes or motivated by sinister and cloudy agendas. Um, amidst this, all of the shades of gray uh, have been painted over and the possibility of navigating an alternative way forward has become increasingly difficult. So that's really why we wanted to have this discussion tonight. And it's obvious that lockdowns and the broader restrictions characterizing the new normal, um, they're easier to go into than to come out of. And our leaders seem to have few answers beyond locking down again. Even with a vaccine on the horizon, uh, but by no means sort of near or around the corner, we really need now more than ever a discussion about how to proceed. This discussion needs, unlike the one-sided discussions that we find in the media, this discussion really needs to be sensitive to the seriousness of the threat we face, but certainly open to alternative ways of doing things. Um, we're drowning in hot takes, yet thirsting for serious suggestions. So I know this is the spirit in which our panelists tonight will approach the discussion, and I sort of invite everyone here in the audience to take up this challenge as well. So I'll, I'll briefly introduce the panel who will help us navigate through this uh, today. Um, speaking first will be uh, Rob Lyons, who's the Science and Technology Director of the Academy of Ideas, the convener of the Academy of Ideas Economy Forum, uh, the author of Panic on a Plate, How Society Developed an Eating Disorder, and of course, most relevantly to this evening, uh, the sort of prominent commentator on all issues COVID. And it's really uh, Rob that I and we at the Academy of Ideas have to thank for providing lots of the intellectual impetus behind tonight's discussion. So I'm really, really delighted that we've got uh, Rob with us. Um, speaking next will be Emily Barley, who's uh, the former Conservative candidate for Wentworth and Dean, the chairman of uh, Conservatives for Liberty, and a writer, as I'm sure you'll know, for a variety of online publications on all sorts of British and international issues. Then speaking uh, last will be Alan Miller, who's the co-founder of Recovery, the former CEO of the Vibe Bar in Brick Lane, the co-founder of the Nighttime Industries Association, a producer and a director, um, and an ambassador and advisory board member for the AP Foundation. Um, as many of you might have seen, we were supposed to tonight be joined by Frankie Anderson, who's a trainee psychiatrist and a regular commentator at the Battle of Ideas Festival. She sends her apologies because she's stuck dealing with a, with a mental health episode in, in her professional life. In fact, she notes that her current workload is really quite extensive at the moment. And I think we can all guess that the uh, current situation, lockdowns, inadequate social and financial support, 
and an all-pervasive sense of doom have been uh, an especial disaster in psychological terms. Frankie tonight may well have offered some support for certain measures associated with the lockdown or something like them, but I'm sure she'd be one of the first to recognize the terrible and often unmentioned costs of our current approach. Now, without just dwelling on the negatives, I do wanna urge us all here to um, try and find the language and the spirit to chart a genuinely positive way forward and not just be sort of confined to noting the downsides and negatives to lockdowns and the current approach, which I'm sure um, many of us and even those who support them would certainly, uh, certainly recognize. Um, so that's the kind of spirit in which I'd invite everyone to approach this evening. One final thing, the Academy of Ideas, I mean, right from the off has been unfurloughed and unbowed. We've lost our major source of revenue, our major thing that we do hold public events in real life with real people. Um, but we've been determined to keep fighting for a free society and offer something unique in the intellectual sphere, which is a space for ideas to be contested without restraint. We really do need your and we need everyone's help to keep doing this, both in sort of providing intellectual impetus in events like tonight, but also uh, financially. So please do go to academyofideas.org.uk slash donate and make a donation if you can. Um, and we're especially grateful if you're able to make it a monthly donation. Now, um, while you're there, you can sign up to our mailing list. You can check out some of our previous and upcoming discussions. You can follow us on Twitter and all the rest of it. And on the note of upcoming discussions, I want to urge you all to sign up to a day of discussion on the 28th of November. It will be held by the BOI charity, which myself and some of my colleagues at the Academy of Ideas also work for. That discussion, a day-long discussion called the Academy Online Race and Racism is going to be a day-long exploration that I'm really excited about of how race and racial thinking has become so central to contemporary politics. Taking a step back, it will take a step back from Black Lives Matter or tussling over the status of critical race theory and we'll revisit some of the groundbreaking thinkers on that topic from W.B. Du Bois to Franz Fanon, James Baldwin and understanding how that intellectual environment and how we got from there to the contemporary world of Robin D'Angelo and White Fragility. We've got a great variety of speakers. Um, some of you will be familiar with them, including Alkin Siegel Kappa, Frank Freddy, Inaya, Imal Florin, and Brendan O'Neill. But it will be a real intellectual opportunity to take a step back, as I say, and sort of dig into some of the trends that underlie it. A very different discussion from what we'll be having tonight, but I do hope to see some of you there. Um, Anyway, that's really uh, probably enough from me. Um, so on from with the discussion, uh, conquering COVID, uh, is there another way? I'll open with Rob. Uh, yeah, I want to open up with uh, three themes, I think, oh, which are basically humility, skepticism, and freedom. Um, if we want to find the best way forward, I think it's important to start by learning the lessons from what has happened already. And uh, we need to acknowledge what we've got wrong. We need to use those lessons to encourage us to be skeptical about every hypothesis and claim we hear. And I think we need to move away from an obsession with this one disease and look at the broader picture of what is happening. So here for very briefly or very quickly is 12 things I think that we got wrong. Um, 
first, I think at the start, we didn't take this disease seriously enough, and I'm very much guilty of that. I think that there's been a lot of crying wolf over the past couple of decades about uh, disease. Um, I think Matt Ridley um, put the case very well in an article in March when he said that the, the, the moral of the story of the boy who cried wolf is eventually there's a wolf. And COVID-19 certainly looks like it is the wolf. Um, and the speed and ferocity in which this uh, disease hit us uh, is still uh, really striking. I looked back at the data the other day in preparation for this. On the 2nd of March, that was the first death in the UK. And so the few days afterwards, there may or may not have been a death. Um, just a month later, on the 8th of April, there was over a thousand deaths in one day. Um, so that was just unprecedented, certainly in my lifetime. And globally, 1.25 million people appear to have died from it. So this is a very serious thing. And anybody who wants to say this is just seasonal flu or there's just a case demic going on, I think is, um, I think it's, it's misguided. Um, second mistake was that the government thought that we were ready for a pandemic and we weren't. It was clear that we didn't have enough uh, personal protective equipment. We thought we might run out of ventilators um, and the NHS was under great strain. In fact, one of the good things about this was that the way in which the NHS sort of rose to the occasion in that, that, that first couple of months was really remarkable. Um, the, the third thing we got wrong, I think, well, well, the government got wrong was listening too much to the nudge unit because they said, and you might remember this from the early news conferences, that um, we wouldn't introduce any social distancing measures until the last possible moment, until the right time, uh, because um, people wouldn't tolerate them. Um, as a result of that, we delayed rather too long in introducing even basic social distancing measures and, and ended up flipping from barely doing anything, really, apart from some general advice, through to full lockdown in little more than a week. Um, fourthly, we, we failed to protect care homes, um, uh, an indication that, you know, of long-standing underfunding and understaffing, but really came home to roost during this, this crisis in the way in which uh, for, mistakes were made in terms of putting patients who were, hadn't been tested back into uh, care homes, or even in the case of Scotland, actually uh, uh, patients from hospitals moved into care homes who had actually tested positive for COVID-19 and were moved anyway. That seems to be um, a tremendous scandal. Um, our fifth mistake was to stop testing too soon, and that was because Public Health England simply couldn't provide the capacity to keep on testing, um, presumably because it was trying to keep everything too much in-house. Uh, that was a big mistake, and it meant that we were flying blind going into the, the very the worst of this crisis. Um, Sixth, for a while, we thought antibody tests would save us. So, you know, you got an antibody test, proved you had it, you could go back to living life as normal. That seems to have disappeared. And actually, the whole issue of immunity seems to be much more complicated in the sense that antibodies, either, some people don't even produce antibodies at all, or that we have uh, antibodies that fade away very quickly. Uh, seventh, I think we sh I think looking from the outside, it'd be interesting to see what people think who have uh, more contact with the NHS, that we shut down too much non-COVID work for too long. Um, not just, I mean, people, cancer has obviously been a big issue in the news, but even things from eye surgery to um, dental work um, have, have, uh, have were held back for too long. Um, and I think that that's, that was a real problem. I think we rely too much on models. And it's not that I think that the models themselves are, are bad. 
Um, I think that the, as giving us a rough guide to the trajectory of, of this uh, infection when we have not very much else to go on, I think that um, they, they were probably okay. But but they're, they're okay in the relationship to the assumptions that are, that are used to create results. And I think that those assumptions weren't interrogated enough. We saw 500,000 potential deaths, and I think we overreacted. And in particular, it was surprising to me to read later on in the year that that while we had modelled a variety of things, that lockdown itself wasn't modelled at the time. Um, seventh, I think we bet the house on test, trace and isolate later on, uh, that testing and isolating people would, would solve the problem. It hasn't worked as far as I can see. And I think a major factor of that is the isolation rules. They're just too extreme for people to be able to maintain. Um, point 10, the data has been awful. I mean. The, the, the government dashboard is now fantastic in terms of giving you a day-by-day -day breakdown of what's going on, but there have been some really major problems, for example, Public Health England overstating uh, the number of uh, deaths during the summer, um, an Excel spreadsheet filling up, which meant we were doing test and trace on a whole on thousands of contacts. Um, I think there's been a failure to trust the public, and I think the public is starting to mistrust the government. So at the start, we had this really good these really good news conferences where the government told us what was going on, explained why, where the direction of travel was likely to be and why it was doing what it was doing. But that seems to have been replaced by using those news conferences to provide really quite scary modelling of uh, trying to kind of scare us into compliance or to justify policies and to um, and, and impose more and more draconian measures on us with fines uh, um, to try and force us to comply. And finally, we never really made up our mind about masks, really. At the start, the government was telling us they were completely useless and possibly harmful. And later on, we seem to uh, be encouraging masks left, right and centre. And I don't think that the science on that has been particularly conclusive one way or the other. So, so moving forward, I think we need to have more humility about our thinking. We'd be wrong before, we could be wrong again. We need to be sceptical about claims, particularly ones arising from models. I think we also need to be sceptical when people say it's over because there's been a plateauing in cases. I think we have to be much more cautious than that. I think it is reasonable to ask questions about the accuracy of testing, for example, even if some people overstate the importance of that. We also need to think about how we decide these issues, what we have to do at what we have at the moment is a crude utilitarian debate. These number of deaths if we do this, these number of deaths if we do that, whichever is the lowest, that's what we do. And I don't think that that's particularly helpful because you end up in a dry and arid debate about evidence and, and the science and so on. Um, and some of those things are just not measurable. How do we compare the loss of a life to the loss of personal freedom for millions of people, the loss of the joys of meeting and friends and family, or the undermining of democracy? Those things are not commensurable and we need something, some other way of judging these things. And we need to develop some principles about allowing people to make up their own minds about how much risk they are willing to bear or whether they want to play it safe. That might mean more people die of this disease in the short term than if we just remain in the constant state of lockdown of one sort or another. We should be honest about that. There's, that may be a trade-off between freedom and risk. To me, I think we need to move to a situation where we give maximum priority to those most vulnerable to the disease so they can choose to shield if they want to and allow us the rest of, as, rest of us as much freedom as possible to get on with our lives. Thank you. Great. Th thanks a lot, Rob. That was a, a brilliant way to kick us off. I'll, I'll keep things moving, so I'll go uh, straight over to Emily. Okay. Um, 
Thank you. And thank you, Jacob, for organising this today. Um, it's great to be here and, and speak to everybody. Um, I'm coming at this from the point of view of sort of four different things that inform my perspective on this. First of all, I am a person who is extremely vulnerable to coronavirus and I shielded earlier in the year. Um, secondly, I'm a libertarian, so I value sort of individual choice and freedom over quite a lot of other things. Um, I'm worried about how the government has used data and one of the things that I've started to do to address that is set up a website called covid-dashboard.live which brings together lots of different data sources in a way that's uh, quite easy to see and understand and finally I'm, I'm horrified by the damage that's being done to the economy and non-covid health and mental health by not just covid-19 but the the response to it as well. I think that at the start of the pandemic, it's kind of understandable that the government went down um, the route that it did. Um, we knew very little about COVID-19. We didn't know what the impact would be. We didn't know what the death rate would be. Um, and we had lots of quite scary models of infections and hospitals being overwhelmed and hundreds of thousands of people dying. Um, so, so that's that's understandable to me. But but what I really struggle with is that as more data and information and understanding and alternative approaches have um, come into play, the government doesn't seem to have changed strategy. Um, and, and I think that's a, a real problem. And added to that is this sense that, you know, there was a crisis earlier on in the year when it was new. But we seem, still seem to be having sort of crisis driven decisions, you know, that this latest wave seems to have been something of a surprise, even though we've been expecting it, the, the, the solution to it is still a, a crisis. Um, so I, I've identified, like Rob, I've identified a few things where I think there are problems um, and, come to, you know, sorry to say, but quite a similar uh, conclusion. Um, so the first is that on, on how vulnerable people are being um, treated and how that issue of, of the extremely vulnerable, the shielding group, is being addressed. Um, we started off with the, the pandemic with the, the high risk group based on the, the people who are at highest risk to flu. And as far as I can see, no further work has been done on risk factors and who is at highest risk despite I think you know a good opportunity to look at the data and really refine that down at the same time now the government has very firmly said we're not bringing shielding back but that also means that the most vulnerable people aren't getting the support that they got earlier in the year to stay at home if that's what they want to do um, and I think even if you don't support the the sort of the great Barrington declaration uh, idea of protecting the vulnerable and letting everyone else get on with it I, I think the way that vulnerable people are being approached is a huge mistake. Second of all, um, you know, another mistake, the, there was an overestimation, I think, at the start of the pandemic of the impact that COVID would have on hospitals. And that is why, you know, um, elective surgery was cancelled and um, access to other kinds of care was restricted. And that's a real problem. What we've actually found is that NHS bed occupancy has been at its lowest level um, all year um, than in a long, long time, <laughs> like practically unheard of levels of, of spare beds. That's only changed recently. The data we've got shows that in October, um, NHS bed occupancy has risen to sort of average levels. It, it's, it's back to normal, essentially. 
um, not overwhelmed. Uh, <laughs> and then the, the other thing that I, I find quite difficult to understand is that at the start of the pandemic, we had this massive expansion of capacity. You know, we had the Nightingale hospitals and all of that. And I'm just left here wondering, why don't we have those now? Where are they when, when it looks like we could actually do with having them? The third thing that I think has been a huge mistake is that the government has kind of messed up what seems to me to be the most important um, part of controlling any infection, and that's quarantining the sick and their close contacts. Uh, we know that test and trace has been something of an epic fail, really. It hasn't achieved its objectives. And a King's College study that came out um, in September um, estimated that only 18% of people who have symptoms are isolating and only 11% of people um, who are informed that they've been in close contact with an infected person are isolating. So we can see where the spread is happening um, and the reasons they identify as to why people are doing that are lack of understanding over the symptoms, the rules, um, difficulties over things like childcare, um, needing to go to work, all of those, those things that make it difficult. It's not just people ignoring the rules, it, it, it is also difficult and perhaps where government should step in. And what I also don't now understand is we have all of these, these things that are happening to, to resolve this second wave, but very little attention seems to be being paid to that issue of quarantining the sick. So the other issue that we've seen in setting up um, covid-dashboard.live is issues you know, in the data and the way that the data is being uh, gathered, recorded and reported. I think the issue around what constitutes a COVID death is quite well known. You know, it's anybody who dies within 28 days of a positive test. Um, that issue also applies to the way um, hospital admissions are being reported. So there's no distinction between people who go in to hospital for something else, but also happen to have COVID and people who are in hospital because they've got COVID. So there's no distinction there. There's also an issue in that the way um, admissions to hospitals is reported was changed in August. It, it was previously reported based on just people who were positive going into hospital. It's now reported as people going into hospital plus people who are diagnosed while they're in hospital. We've got a really um, interesting graph that shows the gap between those two measures. And it looks like it might be something around hospital acquired COVID making up quite a lot of the proportion, but that comes with a health warning. There are some other things it could be. Um, Rob's mentioned the model, so I'm not gonna go into that. I think the main issue that we have with the data is the way it's being presented doesn't really justify the conclusions it's it's giving you know it's not people dying of covid they're not people who are all going into hospital because of covid and there's no distinction and no effort through the pandemic to to find a way to record those things separately and give us better data all of these mistakes to me make it even more difficult to accept the, the enormous damage that's being done to the economy and, and to, you know, to our lives and people's livelihoods, the jobs that are being lost, the businesses that are dying. Um, we know that no amount of government spending can replace a thriving private economy. And so, you know, the, the, the government support packages, they, they really just don't cut it. Um, we also know that when we talk about the impact on the economy, we're not just talking about money. Um, this translates into people's quality of life and into other health measures. And people do die because of recessions. Um, 
and this is going to take years, it's going to take decades to recover from. And, and that, that brings me to a conclusion that's very similar to Rob's is that, you know, focusing on this singular risk of COVID to the exclusion of everything else, I think has been an enormous mistake. And the longer that goes on, the more of a problem it's going to be. The news about a vaccine, I think is, is excellent news. I'm, I'm welcome it, I'm delighted, I'm looking forward to getting mine. But for most people, it really doesn't change the situation that we're facing now. Um, there are limited doses, There's gonna, it's gonna take time to roll out. Um, the Pfizer vaccine is a month from the first dose until people have immunity. So if the government strategy remains to suppress the virus, um, until herd immunity is achieve, achieved through a vaccine, it's going to be at least six months more of, of you know, being switching lockdowns on and off, local or national. It could be longer, uh, <laughs> and the, the consequences, you know, to people's health, to the economy, to all the rest of it, is just going to keep growing and growing and growing. I think it's it's a really messy and it's a difficult situation, but I would like the government now to switch away from this suppression strategy. Um, I'd like them to give more respect to individual choice and, and people making their own decisions about the risks that they're willing to take on. Uh, and, and, I, and I think using voluntary measure, measures and the way I characterize that is informing people of their individual risks and giving them ideas. Um, so giving them the guidance on what they should do about it, supporting them to follow the guidance with the most support directed to the most vulnerable people and institutions like care homes. Uh, and then trusting people to do the right things for the for themselves and um, and the people who they who, who are around them based not just on the risk of COVID, but on um, you know, the other considerations and, and risks that they have in their lives. And I think the, really the only place we should be focusing enforcement is on the quarantine of, uh, quarantining of the sick. Great, and thanks a lot for that, Emily. That was a very comprehensive introduction. I hope everyone does uh, check out the link that's been posted to the, to the COVID dashboard. Um, it's a great resource for everyone to dig into. Um, Again, in the spirit of keeping things moving, I'll, I'll head over to uh, Alan. Uh, hi. Thank you, Jacob. Thanks, guys. Uh, it's very insightful already. Um, so when the first lockdown was proposed, many of us went along with it, knowing far less and thinking it was perhaps understandable, if a bit extreme, with so many unknowns. But remember back then, too, there was much discussion about herd immunity, what it would mean for people to get it or not, whether children should stay in school. And we knew fairly quickly that the, the most at risk were the old and those with underlying pre-existing conditions. Now, international comparison is always a bit tricky due to various variables, but it's important to note that Sweden has managed to have far less restrictions. And while they had their own problems with care homes, they've shown that there are other ways to manage risks uh, while avoiding total lockdowns. Similarly, South Korea, Taiwan, and Hong Kong uh, all had strategies that prevented complete lockdowns. So with enormous goodwill, the country saw millions of us volunteer. It was a bit like the Olympics, uh, neighbours helping one another, all demonstrating how decent the majority of the public is. Contrary to some views, people are not generally nasty and selfish, but they're willing to help and can exercise judgment and calculate risks. Now they should be allowed to do this much more, it seems to me. The government originally took this approach, but sadly, in my opinion, did, did one of their many U-turns after shrill calls on social media and elsewhere where some said that people wanted to be told what to do. And in fact, I think there was a major opportunity that was missed to galvanize 
the very inspiring and widespread willingness of the public to help uh, and to help more. Indeed, this is what happened when many volunteered like myself and others for the Nightingale Hospital and other emergency hospitals that, that, that lay mainly empty uh, and not, notwithstanding the points Rob has made, uh, the fear of beds was misplaced in that context, thankfully. Now, some have argued that this demonstrates that there was some kind of bigger dubious plan behind the steps that the government took, and I really don't think that. Actually, what I think has characterised the response after the initial period is, is not some conspiratorial dark force, but rather a kind of continuation of the tendency that's been very prominent in policy, both nationally and locally, which is when in doubt about something, regulate. Now, as the country demonstrated its willingness to go along to help, unfortunately, the government transitioned, in my opinion, from what I believe was a sincere attempt to deal with an unknown challenge to one increasingly that looked to impose more rules and regulations and often quite arbitrary that made little sense. However, it should be noted that this is not altogether new. The last 15 years has seen politicians and local authorities who've lacking ideas about how to solve problems and inspiration to have like dynamic transformation of a society have ended up imposing more and more regulations on us. This is true whether it's to do with busking or where we can walk, take photos, private and public space, security, surveillance, drinking, walking, even playing in the park. And there seems to be uh, ever increasing public space protection orders for everything and anything. Now, the clamping down on the public is always presented as a response to a problem, such as sometimes antisocial behaviour, alcohol-related crimes, or health concerns, and as a way to improve things, often using public health as the driver. Now, we've witnessed one of the largest ever encroachment on freedoms and legislation, often with little debate in Parliament and with the public, uh, like the Coronavirus Act, uh, as this approach has been pursued for, for lockdown in particular. Guidance have become rules. The government has hunkered down with more each time, such as the utterly unjustifiable rule of six. Where is the balance? Where is the weighing up, the risk assessment, the impact consideration and the economic evaluations of all this? For rulers that have become obsessed with impact assessments and risk analysis, and if we remind ourselves in every business in the UK it's assisted upon, along with health and safety provision, this seems like it was somewhat cavalier and very arbitrary and certainly confusing. Never mind that, sit down, stay at home, save lives, shut up. We've been bombarded by stats for several months, but then hospitalizations and fatalities were discussed in a different way and the R rate and infections were, were all the rage. But people have been asking questions. How many could be immune? What about asymptomatic condition, non-conditions? How many millions could have been infected already? And how does lockdown work to the benefit of dealing with the virus while managing life ongoing within this context? Sadly, the government outsourced responsibility, uh, in my opinion, to SAGE, telling us that it was following the science. But as we know, science is a method of research. And we need to have some honesty. Political decisions are not science, and they should be susceptible to questioning and criticism. And unfortunately, we've seen some nasty attitudes towards asking questions, from claiming people are COVID deniers to COVID idiots and even granny killers, for going to the park or wanting to take a balanced approach to all risk we face while being able to keep society going. When only one issue becomes absolutely paramount, as it seems with SAGE currently, many other risks are not tackled. Freedom's also an essential and paramount part of our lives that many fought and died for. The idea that we should or can swap one for the other is very misguided, in my opinion. 
we talk about deaths and risk to death, we should also talk about all of them, as others have mentioned, cancer patients that went from stage one to stage four during lockdown and those with strokes, heart issues, as well as NATO and a whole range of other concerns. Tens of thousands have been impacted and the idea that only a virus is given prominence is very irrational and dangerous. While we're told that our hospitals are now doing elective emergency operations for serious cancer treatment, many of us will know from examples that we know directly, this is simply not true. The approach of lockdown mentality has been intimately connected to supposedly COVID ready hospitals. Now, of course, these are big challenges. Nobody's pretending nor should they, they are not. However, to ensure the most success and efficiency in handling problems, we need to have honesty and transparency. The Great Barrington Declaration has an approach that aims to address this in just this way. Now, it's insensible and important to dedicate as much of our resource and attention to protecting highly vulnerable groups from care homes and hospitals where so many infections have occurred and not closing bars and restaurants where less than 3% of infections have occurred. To ensure testing and dedicated focus protection as the Barrington Declaration advises, along with any vaccine focused here and for their dedicated staff. But whilst we're doing so, we should have society open for the majority of people while we continue to take sensible measures. Ensuring a dynamic economy is paramount to innovation and moving forward as it is for social engagement, the trip to work and interactions with colleagues and neighbors. Many have pointed to the impacts of loneliness, isolation, mental health, and particularly the worrying Ofsted report about the impact on children. So a couple of questions to leave everyone with in response to what I think is rushed legislation and its connection to lockdowns. What kind of country do we want to be? Do we wanna be one that advocates arresting a daughter nurse who goes to collect her 94 year old mother from a care home in order to look after her? Do we want students imprisoned on campuses? Do we really think police roaming Sainsbury's is a sensible use of resource? Or police declaring they'll come into our homes to break up Christmas dinners that break the rule of six? Now we could have done this with nuance, with balancing of different risks, with smart strategical appliance, with focused protection, engaging the public, treating us with respect as adults and allowing us judgment and decision-making. So I put it to you that this is what we need now, that we need to have recovery for all. Everyone should have their voices heard and I'd invite you all to enjoy, enjoy all to join us at recovery if you agree with this. Um, thanks a lot for that. Uh... Thanks a lot for that, uh, Alan. That was a, a third a really great introduction and a great way to get this uh, conversation moving. There's loads, obviously, I could dig into myself and lots of interesting points raised. And already the sort of chat, um, as it does in these like uh, Zoom meetings, has, has lit up with lots of interesting points and links to papers and people getting almost into the weeds of sort of different academic approaches and whatnot. Um, we're very welcome to having some of those uh, discussions and we can talk about some of the finer points of some of the evidence or but also important I think in this discussion to allow ourselves to take a step back like our speakers have done and look at things from the level of some general principles as well as as our speakers have only really just begun to do but uh, sort of taking a stab at defining what might be the, the, the sort of principles for how we how we move forward. Um, so there's already lots of hands going up and I, I want to get out to the audience because the whole reason we do all our debates at the Academy of Ideas and especially this one is to try and chart through public discussion a way forward. So um, if you use the raise hand function, uh, which you can find uh, in, in the box in the chat, which I'm sure you're all familiar with by now, um, or if you really can't find it, try and message me or otherwise make yourself heard and we'll, we'll try and come to you. But the first one, um, first hand I've got is uh, Mehdi. So I'll, I'll come over to you, I'll ask you to unmute yourself 
first of all, can I thank all the speakers? Um, uh, Rob, Emily, and Alan really raised some very interesting and fundamental um, issues, uh, with all of which I've got great sympathy. In particular, I'm thankful to Rob, especially by enumerating his uh, 12, um, 12 points, 12 issues. He carried me all the way until virtually the last um, uh, hurdle. And he really let me down at the last hurdle, which was about risk. And what understood Rob saying was all issues got to be explained uh, to the public and allow them to make a decision and assess the risk and make the decision. And I think that's, Rob, with respect, that's virtually half the story. There's a, there is a risk to an individual, to oneself, and then there is a risk that I can actually offer other people as a result of my behavior. I just make a very quick analogy. If I decide to cross the road and I can ass assess the risk, if I'm going, by, going from one side of the road to the other side of the road, I might get killed. That is a risk which, which I can understand and I can assess on my own behalf. However, if I'm confronted with the um, choice of uh, drinking six uh, um, pints of beer and sit behind the wheel of the car and drive, that is the risk, apart from risk to myself, that is the risk I actually confront other people as a result of my action. Therefore, there is the question of asymptotic or asymptomatic uh, uh, case, if you like, that I may have the virus, because of my condition, my age, my circumstances, not being uh, a great risk to myself, but I can actually pass it on, pass it on to my uh, my parents, to my to my grandparents, and therefore this is where I take uh, take issue, if I may, with Rob, unless he can actually uh, uh, provide another uh, that I'm wrong or to illuminate them. Thank you. Great, Th thanks a lot for that. That's a, a very important uh, challenge, which I'm sure the, the speakers will come back to. I'm gonna go over to uh, Joe Hurley. Um, okay, I just wanted to get a sense from the panel, because I think Mehdi's point is really important. And I still don't think we're mediating the relationship between my freedom and Emily's arguing that point. She says she's libertarian. How do we mediate that point with the actual virus and the question of managing what we're faced with? So Rob quite rightly said we underestimated it. Um, there is a risk to a lot of people, a lot of people dying. And you then have this other thing, which is you have the vulnerable over there and the healthy over here. Now, I'm just wondering if there isn't something which is more along the lines of what Alan was saying, which we need to explore which is how does the population actually become involved in the discussion of managing the virus in a way that doesn't then just reinforce our own sense of risk? 
And I'm wondering how people balance that because I don't think there's enough discussion. It means that you either end up on one side or the other with the two sides never twain. Great, thanks for that, Joe. I'll move swiftly on to Josephine uh, Hussey. Hi. Oh. Um, so um, I'm a lay person, but I'm also a teacher. So, um, uh, you know, as someone who wants my freedom, I've spent quite a few hours trying to understand the data and knowing that really, I don't really understand it. I'm not a specialist on this and I've had lots of arguments about it. Um, but the two things that did occur to me um, are, um, and a few people have alluded to this, is first of all, the infantilization of us as adults and the, um, the fact that we've not allowed to be creative in any way in our response to um, this um, problem um, and actually have been pushed out. Um, and for me, that has kind of fed into something that was already going on um, where, um, and this was shown with the American election, how you know, they poll people, but they don't actually know what the rest of the population are doing and that we're actually getting on with our lives and a lot of these things are going on around us. And um, I think one of the problems that we have is that um, a lot of people um, are very alienated um, because we're isolated, but we're not experiencing the, um, the disease in our lives. And so we're becoming very, very cynical. I live in an area that's a very, very low risk um, and, um, I'm in the country, so we're naturally socially distanced and I don't know of any cases at all. I have friends in London who I know have had it and um, I know I've heard that in London it kind of ravaged the city and various other cities. So there are people who are very cynical because they think, well, I don't know anyone who's had it. Um, you know, everyone around here has been very sensible and, um, and yet, um, you know, we're still being told to lock down. Um, I don't understand the data. I'm being told this data, but I'm not seeing it. And so um, there's the people are moving further and further back and the majority are becoming more and more silent, but we're still carrying on. Um, we seem to have forgotten um, that as human beings, we can be creative. Um, and um, one of the things that worries me about the first point is that the whole discussion is about um, that we're a problem um, rather than a solution. Um, and um, one of the things that really hit home to me, and um, Alan talked about this as a teacher, I was really, really cross with the Ofsted report that came out because we've had the Ofsted um, visit and the visit is a phone call or a Zoom meeting with the head teacher where the head teacher is asked questions about how the school has dealt with the recovery. Um, and um, as you know, it's anecdotal basically. Um, and we are hearing anecdotal evidence that um, children are going back into nappies and can't hold a knife and fork and can't speak and all of these kind of things. I'm sure that there are problems, but um, I don't think we should be moving forward on the basis of anecdotal evidence. And so even in schools, um, the real rich context of what's going on in schools isn't explored anymore. Um, I think it really shows up the turgid nature of our state and how inefficient the public sector has become and how technocratic it has become. And um, this lack of creativity combined with this lack of ability, uh, willingness to look at the context in which um, things are going on um, is for me, the biggest problem that we're facing at the moment. Great, thanks a lot, Josephine. I'll take, I think, uh, two or three more before we get the panel back in. So, uh, Kevin, it's over to you. Right, I actually find myself uh, disagreeing with Emily on one of her points uh, about the support package. Um, 
the furlough scheme was one of the best um, that I've seen around the world, especially for people with their, their employment support and paying their wages. So uh, that's one thing I've got to actually give the government credit for on that one. Uh, and Alan's point uh, in regards to Sweden, yeah, um, I agree that their approach to the lockdown was much better, but I find myself looking in the glass eyes of hindsight in that one. And I find myself agree with you again on why do we have to regulate everything? Does everything need a risk assessment before we do it? Um, aren't we turning into a society where we basically wrap ourselves up in cotton wool? Okay. And society's excuse for the minute for delay, any lateness or anything like that is uh, COVID-19 is the go-to excuse for absolutely everything. All right. I've got 10 text messages on my phone, which I'll quite happily show um, you all here. Uh, sorry for the delay, COVID-19. Sorry for the delay. It goes on. All right. However, I do have a question for Rob. Um, Mehdi made uh, quite a valid point. Um, and my question to you is, how can we balance risk, risk to uh, others, to ourselves, uh, to our loved ones, when we don't fully know what the risks are, because yet we still have not seen the science behind any of the COVID-19. All we've been told is that a miracle has happened and there is a vaccine somewhere down the line. And thank you. Yeah, great, thanks a lot for that, Kevin. I'll, I think I'll take two more before we get the, uh, the speakers back in. So uh, Noah, over to you. Brilliant. Thank you, Jacob. Um, yeah, really great points from everyone. Just a few uh, bits from me. Um, lots of panels spoke about the failures of government, and it's easier to think of sort of lists, starter lists, where they are seen to have failed and U-turned. And I wonder whether, to what extent, the panel think any of the U-turns were shaped not just by um, sort of scientific modelling, but also um, opinion polling showing widespread support for uh, the continuation of lockdown measures. And I wonder how much the panel thought you can rely on the opinion polling of what the public think, given that someone might say on the phone um, that they would adhere to the lockdown measures because they want to you know, have social desirability, but in reality, they wouldn't actually stick to the rules. Um, Alan made a good point about the fact there was sort of a lack of scrutiny in regards to the first lockdown. And I wonder whether that's because, um, as all the panel have said, you know, COVID-19, it was something very new. It was something we knew very little about. And so therefore, where in a normal political crisis, as it were, you would have had proper scrutiny, it instead just turned into questioning and journalists, instead of asking whether there should be a lockdown, were simply asking what the guidance was and what the advice was. So it's almost like there had been a complete acceptance of the need for a, a lockdown and severe restrictions. Um, and finally, Jacob mentioned, you know, we're trying to have a bit of sort of optimism for the sort of post-COVID future. And I wonder whether we should think optimistically, whether the panel um, think we should think optimistically about the survival of, you know, hospitality institutions like the theatre, like art galleries, like museums, because of the success of schemes like the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, which show that people are willing to um, support restaurants, support um, places that had had to shut fully during the first lockdown. And actually, we should, whether we should be optimistic that people will go out again and uh, want to support them and defend uh, whatever society we get in this, this new normal world that we're in. Thank you. Great. Th thanks for that, uh, Noah. I think an interesting, a definitely great point made in terms of the maybe not being optimistic about the future, but certainly capturing a, a spirit of optimism or positivity about what can be done and how people can be 
engaged in that, whether that's the public desire to help restaurants or the public desire to get involved in volunteering, as is mentioned elsewhere. Okay, I'll, I'll get one more in, um, which will be Mike Fitzpatrick. If you got me, thank you. Um, yeah, very interesting discussion. I come to this, if I can say by way of introduction, um, as a, somebody working as a GP in the course of the pandemic, uh, conducting assessments of people with potential COVID. So I've had some clinical experience of COVID. I also come to this uh, with some 30 years of experience of engaging with a whole series of health related, what you might call scares from the HIV AIDS issue to the mad cow disease to bird flu, SARS, and the swine flu pandemic. So I've had some experience of engagement with these sorts of issues and the controversies that surround them. And my immediate response to the coronavirus problem is that it's, it is by far the greatest health-related catastrophe of my lifetime. And I think that there's a certain element, elephant in the room in this discussion in terms of grasping the scale of the problem and the recognizing that because of the very viciousness of this disease, it creates very great challenges on the health side and also any attempt to deal with it also has, creates enormous collateral problems, which many people have, have dealt with. And I completely accept the, uh, some of the uh, difficulties of, of, of trying to grasp what the problem is and some of the adverse effects of some of the attempts to deal with it. But I think it's just got to, we have got to acknowledge, and one of the issues that immediately we're confronted with is there's been an attempt, I think a systematic attempt to downplay the scale of when people talk about a single, there's a single-minded obsession with one disease. Well, that is quite inevitable given the scale of the problem. And we've only, it's only a few weeks since many people would say them, uh, describe themselves as skeptics in relation to uh, COVID have uh, said that the, uh, the, the pandemic is over, that we've reached herd immunity, there isn't going to be a second wave. We're now in the middle of a second wave. We've got more than 500 deaths a day this week in this country. We've got a total death rate just over 50,000. Uh, that's at the most conservative estimate. According to the official Office of National Statistics, it's probably over 65,000 deaths. And a similar, uh, and the, which is uh, to get it into some sort of context, that is about the level of civilian casualties in civilian deaths in this country in the Second World War. And we've got similar levels of attrition throughout the Western world. So I think we've got to just get a grip of that. And, and there's, there's a sort of constant attempt to downplay that. And Rob alluded to the fact of people comparing it with seasonal flu, which has been a very recurrent um, theme among skeptics, where it's fairly obvious that the, the, um, the COVID is about three times as transmissible as flu and about 10 times as lethal. And that's apart from the morbidity of long COVID, which is also causes. So I think we've got to start from there. There are no easy choices here. And there's, it's very easy to, to bemoan any measures of restriction that are brought in to try and deal with it. Because actually, the problem that there's talk about the vaccine, as everybody says, that's some way down the road even yet. And the treatments also are very limited at the present time. So basically, what are we going to do about this disease? The only options are some measures of quarantine, track and trace and restriction and social distancing. There is nothing else. And any measures of that sort inevitably constrain civil liberties. 
there's no way around that is the nature of any kind of quarantine or or, or public health measure to con contain a, an infectious disease that's the, the of which there's a very long history so you, you it's very important not to think you, you can't have your cake and eat it on this everybody would dearly wish that you could unleash uh, people who are at lowest risk and constrain the people that are at the highest risk. But practicalities of that are totally forbidding. It's wishful thinking to think that that can be achieved. And if you say that you know you want to try and get away from the restrictions, it's incumbent upon you to specify exactly what levels of constraint you are prepared to accept because there's, there's no way of avoiding them in some form or other. And to think that you can do that is wishful thinking and uh, avoids, it avoids the basic, basic issues. And discussing it in terms of individual choice and the acceptance, Robert Lee uh, made the point that if you accept giving individual choice to people to, to assess their own risk and take the consequences, that, that may lead to a, a significant level of mortality, which we may need to be prepared to accept. That's a, an acknowledgement that's greater than the Great Barrington Reef people who have not even, uh, they've not been prepared to specify what level of, of mortality they would be prepared to accept as a price of that unleashing, because that is indeed the case. But most calculations are that the, and it has to be said also, uh, people talk about a lot of modeling. The official modeling has been remarkably accurate in this uh, episode, in this epidemic. At every stage it's predicted, yeah, they've, they've got into a lot of trouble by, over by overstating a, a case, by, by spoiling a good case by overstating it. But generally speaking, the projections have been fairly accurate. It's fairly, fairly generally that if this was unleashed, the level of attrition would be in the hundreds of thousands. And it's, 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 that's what, you know, the price that you, it's easy to say that you're going to accept that price. It's even easier to say if your individual choice has a far greater likelihood that somebody else will carry that burden of mortality, which as we know is what is likely to happen. So I think, I've gone on a long time, but I think we have to say that, uh, let's avoid wishful thinking here. Let's confront the elephant in the room. Let's not try and pretend this is not a major problem and wishful thinking that it can be easily sorted out. Great, Th thanks for that, um, Mike. And, and uh, how an important challenge that I think um, all, all of us in the conversation sort of recognize the need to deal with the seriousness of the issue. And then um, on the basis of that, try and figure out where the trade-offs we made and on what principles we can we can have this discussion. I'll, I'll come back to our speaker. So, uh, Rob, is there anything? I'm sure there's lots you want to come into, but um, what would you like to start with? Um, well, I, mean, I think that the, the, the two challenges are quite rightly, the, the, basically the point that Mehdi made and I think Mike um, echoed, and the, the, the problems, the practicalities of doing something like the Great Barrington Declaration. I, um, I don't uh, sort of dismiss either of those. I think they're very, very important. And when I'm talking about accepting a degree of the fact that if we have more freedom, we're going to have more lives lost, I certainly wouldn't want to pursue something that that's going to end up with hundreds of thousands of lives being lost. That's silly. I think most people would recognise that that's uh, just not conscionable. Um, but I do think that we, we can have more freedom than we're having at the moment. And I think that one thing I tried to do in an article for The Telegraph a couple of weeks ago was say, well, if we're going to do uh, have a more open society and we're going to try to protect the vulnerable, then how about rather than just simply dismissing that as impossible or that pointing out uh, 
difficulties? How do we get around those difficulties? How do we have an attitude of how do we resolve these things rather than saying that's impossible? Because if we'd had that attitude of, well, we've never had a vaccine within you know, years of, of something occurring, then so clearly we wouldn't have a, vac a vaccine now. Um, and I think I think that there are pr practical things that we can do. First of all, we obviously we need to make sure that 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 people, the right people, are shielded. We identify the right people who are uh, shielded to be shielded. Obviously, it's older age groups and people with pre-existing conditions or people who are immunosuppressed because of uh, organ transplant or or because of, um, of of cancer treatments. That things like that. We have to re recognise those people, and we have to make sure that they there is no reason for them. To, to leave their homes, uh, for example, you know, they can get all of the things that they need delivered to them so that, that, the, that those immediate practical difficulties are assuaged. And we, and we can also find ways in which they can interact with other people outside of their homes as well, um, whether it is through uh, just meeting outside in gardens or whatever, so that they're, they're some kind of social contact uh, can, be, can be maintained. I think that um, uh, so it's 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 trying to start a debate about that kind of thing that I was trying to do in that article because I think that um, even if you decide that you want a lot of restrictions on the rest of society, you still probably want to have a great deal of protection offered uh, to those vulnerable groups, um, whatever wherever else happens, because this is going to run on for some time. In some ways, the vaccine actually could be said to, to improve that argument because rather than saying you have to shield and you'll have to shield for an indeterminate future. We, we can now start to say, well, there's a, there's a, if you like, there's light at the end of the tunnel where you, uh, many of you people will be vaccinated against this within the next few months. Um, even though a vaccine will not change the picture as regards the broader spread of, of, of the virus, it will allow a greater degree of protection uh, beyond just shielding um, for, for those groups. So I think that that's a discussion that needs to start I think actually we could be ending up in the worst of both worlds, where compliance with these restrictions becomes weaker and weaker as become, people become more frustrated. They start uh, interacting with each other in less COVID secure places. For example, that you know meeting each other's houses for parties rather than meeting in the pub, things like that. Well, at the meantime, we're not providing the proper and adequate care. Uh, and support that's required for people to really isolate them from themselves and from society. So um, we have to be careful that there is a simply lockdown versus opening up. I don't think that um, it would be wise from the point of view of, of our health services to completely just open up overnight. I think restrictions will be necessary for some time to come, some time to come. But I think that we could be much more open now, now and we need to start that discussion about how we manage that risk rather than constantly defaulting back to lockdowns. Right, that's, thanks, a, thanks a lot for that, Rob. That's a, a helpful stab at the, the, the tough questions. Um, I'll come over to uh, Emily. We'll put you back on. Yeah, so th this question of, of managing risk for, for vulnerable people, and I, I stated my, you know, my, my interest in this at the beginning, that I am an extremely vulnerable person. So when, when we talk about the, the most vulnerable, we're talking about people, me and people like me. And I, I really, I mean, first of all, I just want to say, I don't want everything locked down, like for my sake, please don't do that. Um, second of all, I think, you know, this idea that it's not just your risk, it's other people's risk and, you know, passing it on and all of that kind of thing. It's a, it's a decent point, but it does only go so far because we know that, um, 
the, the risk of transmission, transmission happens most often and, and the time it happens the most is in close proximity in social situations. The government has said, you know, that the risk is really if you're in close proximity to someone for 15 minutes or longer. Um, and so let, let's be realistic. Most of the time, that's people you know, you know, that's friends and family. And so the, the place where the greatest risk to the most vulnerable people is, is for the people that they're closest to and know them the best and presumably care about them as well. And it, that's quite controllable, you know, as a person who's vulnerable, you can just choose not to let people in the house. Um, and, and as Rob said, you can, um, you know, the government really needs to take the measures that will enable people to stay at home. Um, I think, but I think also, you know, Josephine, she used that word, you know, infantilizing people. And I think that's an important one because the, the truth of it is that if you are a very vulnerable person and you understand the risk, but you say, nevertheless, um, I still want to live a fairly normal life, like that's okay. You know, your, your fear of coronavirus doesn't have to govern everybody. Um, Rob's point also about a vaccine being the light of, the light at the end of the tunnel really really good yeah I, I think that's a very good point um Kevin mentioned furlough being the best in the world yes yes it is I think the, the government support that that they've given to businesses and jobs has been great but it still doesn't replace a private economy there, there is nothing in the world that will do that and it's going to cost us dear in the future you know it's all going to have to be paid for um Kevin also asked about how we balance the risks when we don't know what the risks are. And that's a difficult one. And one of the things that really disappoints me about how the pandemic has gone on is that more work has not been done on risk. I think we, we have an enormous amount of data in the NHS that really could have done with being analysed more and, and given us a more precise picture of, of, of the scale of risk and how it applies. Um, I, I'm at risk because I'm immunosuppressed due to medication I take. Some of the research I've seen suggests that actually, unless I have other comorbidities, I may not be at that great of a risk, but that hasn't been clarified and it ha people haven't been informed about that. So that's difficult. Um, Noah asked about the impact of polling and how reliable we think polling is. Um, I think we know that self-reported polling is not reliable. People often say what they think they should say or what they think the other person wants to hear. Um, I think actual behaviour probably is a better way of, of seeing the level of support um, for, for measures. And I referred to the King's College study in my earlier remarks that said, you know, very few people are actually complying with the, with the quarantine um, rules with isolating so we, i don't know if that's an indicator for opinion but i, I don't know could, can um, we maybe leave it there on on that note emily just to sure. get through some of it there, there'll be plenty more time for you to come yeah. back in um and because i want to get alan in and there's already yeah. a, a lot of hands um, yeah go ahead uh alan i need to find you now there you are well, yeah well a lot of very good important points have been have been made i do think that these things should not be binary and that we can be grown up about this and balanced and we can say that things are risky and dangerous, particularly to certain groups. And as a society, we have a responsibility to work out strategies about how to uh, put our resources and our expertise and our commitment to try and ensure that we mitigate those risks. But it's not just one set of risks, even if it is a very particularly, specially dangerous virus. 
for certain groups in particular. We still have a, a, a range of people who are dying and have got much more ill, have been neglected as a consequence of some of the strategies and the way of doing things. I respect my, uh, Dr. Mike Fitzpatrick enormously. He's been right on so many things historically. Um, I do happen to think that um, th th it's presented in a slightly binary way. It's not the case that to say that we should be uh, focused in terms of focused uh, uh, protection, that we're, that we're somehow being flippant about it. And it's not the case to say that when we want to have the economy open and that many young people uh, have, have had it, some have been asymptomatic, some have got sick, that, that that's being flippant. I mean, my son, for instance, had it, as did his mother. I can tell you now that for my son, it's a lot worse in New York, him not going to school and being on Zoom than him have, having had COVID. And the, uh, the abdication of responsibility and leadership, uh, the dereliction of duty by adults, it seems, in authority to not give a lead in a way that they should has been really worrying. I think we have to balance the risks. All of us, I'm sure at this point, have personal stories about all of this. You know, a few years ago, my, my uncle was only 10 years older than me. He got swine flu and he has an autoimmune condition and he was in a coma. And had he not been in the uh, Hampstead or Royal Hospital in Hampstead, uh, I think he definitely would have died. He was in a very serious situation. When this came out right at the start, I said, this is, we can talk about more broadly, but you have to, this is very serious for you in particular. My mum has multiple, uh, multiple sclerosis. Um, we, we have friends that have had it, some, some people that have died that we know. It's not a joke. It's also the case, and it's not flippant to say that millions of people die of tuberculosis, tuberculosis every year. That does not denigrate the conversation. It does not mean that we're not then serious about it. It's also the case, I've got to say, it's not to say it's just the cold or just the flu, but the ONS figures that we all respect, even today, if you look at them, they actually show deaths involving influenza and pneumonia, deaths involving COVID and due to COVID. And I think the point is that we can assess rationally and evaluate things and not have knee jerk clamping down on things. And we do have to decide what is acceptable? And in order to do that, we have to have an honest discussion and debate. There's been a very, I mean, you know, I do think that much of this has been mind boggling. Some of the contradictory ways of handling things, some of the fearful presentation of, they're not just facts, it's data. We need to get better at understanding the data and we need to be more honest and we need to be able to work out who to protect. And let's be honest too. Some older people with conditions, right, that are in their 80s, that are in the really high risk category, that have diabetes or respiratory conditions or Alzheimer's, 90% of the people that are dying are of high risk categories, right? Some of them, uh, if they can make choices, want to be able to take the risk of taking a risk in order to enjoy this part of their life. Like some people want to smoke and some people want to drink and do other things. And I think that we have to respect autonomy and freedom in the context of also not being a real danger to everyone else. And we've got to be able to have serious conversations about how we do that and not be fearful uh, and, and take it in from the approach of true leadership and have authority and not abdicate our positions. And in order to do this, we need to have honesty and transparency. And the knee-jerk reactions to just clamp down are very problematic. And I do think that having a balanced, calm, open debate is the way that you do that. Great, thanks, Alan. Um, we'll come straight back out to the the audience. I'll, I think uh, Jennifer was uh, Jenny was waiting first. So, I, th I think um, Alan's comeback um, is particularly useful because the tr the trouble um, 
with Mike's sort of presentation of the seriousness um, of, of the problem, um, still, <laughs> is still ignoring the other aspects of this whole discussion, which is that we have been subject to a huge loss um, of democratic control over this whole process. Um, you know, pe people have been excluded really from discussing all of these measures. And one of the reasons, as Alan says, is the real lack of transparency on things. I mean, there's complete um, uh, secrecy about a lot of these policies, even within government. There's a lot of NHS data, which is kept secret um, and, and isn't made transparent. So I, I completely agree with the thrust of people's argument that there has to be more public discussion of these sort of things. How can you possibly um, have a discussion about risk and what risks uh, people are prepared to take and what risks they accept they can't take unless there's some kind of public forums in which you can have these discussions. Um, the other thing is that a, a lot of criticism is due the government and the so-called scientific community. And I don't think the seriousness of the disease sort of mitigates against the need to really take this up. Um, I, I'll just conclude that there's one very, very good set of arguments that have been put forward by Carl Hennigan and uh, <coughs> Tom Jefferson in an article in The Spectator, um, uh, which, which was called um, The Nine Worst COVID-19 Biases, and goes through here, but the most important one they make is this confirmational bias. The fact that the government and the scientists are using data to justify policy, not the other way around. They're not using data to determine um, policy so much as the other way around. And I think that's terribly important because it's almost impossible for them to retract from the policies they've actually embarked on. Extremely difficult when you've started using data in this way to justify your preconceived ideas about policy. So I, I would just say, I think somehow or another, we've got to try and push the arguments that um, democracy has been seriously undermined during this, and that it is terribly important that there are avenues for the public to debate these things, both locally and regionally. Thanks. Great. Thanks, um, Jennifer. Okay, so th there's, uh, Karen, there's uh, Marcus. Uh, you know that sometimes you uh, make a contribution and you feel like you're right in the middle of some big arguments and debates and uh, your contribution is a lot smaller, but I'll, I'll make it anyway. Um, um, when I think about this, I think that in society just now, um, and always actually, there are conformists, um, there are rebels, um, and the rebels fall into two categories. Rebels without a cause and rebels with a cause. Now, the conformists see anything that breaks the law as being antisocial behavior. The rebels without a cause, 
they break the law and they break all laws because they are antisocial and they want to be antisocial and they want to kick against the man. For us, for myself, I include rebels with a cause. We say, well, actually, some forms of breaking the law are not antisocial. They're actually a very social thing. Now, I think the problem for, for, for rebels with a cause just now is that the line has moved. Whereas before, being antisocial was driving down the motorway drunk. Now, being antisocial is sneezing without a mask in a supermarket. And it's difficult as rebels to accept that because I absolutely hate against that. I rant and rave about every single level. I still conform, but I'm kicking against it. And it's difficult as rebels to accept these infringements on our freedom. And it's difficult to accept that now some of them are now antisocial. Some of the things that we expect to be just a right are become antisocial behavior. Now, mm -hmm. we have to try and fight on that, that line about what's antisocial and say, no, actually, wait a second, that's going too far. You know, shouting at policemen and shouting at people sitting on park benches in the park, that's going too far. That's, that's not antisocial. And that fight over what is antisocial and what's rebellion is one worth fighting for. And one we need to convince the conformists that they need to be on our side. That's all. Great. No, thanks for that, Mark. It's a very helpful contribution. I'll keep things moving, going over to Paul Reeves. I'd just almost like to re reiterate one of uh, Rob's points that may have got buried, but I think it's quite central. His point about how you compare and deal with things that are measurable, uh, like maybe deaths and the economy, etc., against the more abstract things of thing things, concepts, if you like, that aren't measurable such as freedom and democracy and stuff like that and it just occurred to me um ultimately this is almost like what politics has always been about like in the good old days of just simple left and right um they were both kind of fairly abstract aspects where the measurable was maybe assumed a bit but that you know there was a, a there were ideas driving people forward as to what actions occur in society in the future um, and we're largely about things where things may not be brilliant for what happens now but still it was for the greater good of something in the future and I guess this ties into Alan's point uh, of what kind of society do we want so that is my main point that I guess the essence mm. of that kind of comparison of what can you measure and what is abstract is the center of politics but I also think this also, it's almost like this COVID crisis is a kind of training ground or a preparation or whatever, or a, a dress rehearsal for what's going on, going to happen in the wider aspects of politics in the future over the environment. Because you've got similar arguments being made about things that are measurable against more abstract ideas of where humanity goes, I guess. So I just wanted to re-emphasize to me that that important political issue that need if you're interested in politics you need to uh almost have that just work out that those two points between what is measurable and what is abstract yes i as i said i mean what i found uh, really interesting about uh, the discussion is that the binary nature of the discussion, what, what many of you have touched upon, I, I really, really experienced it in my uh, professional life uh, because although there is criticism of 
the lockdown, and I do think that uh, it's absolutely uh, the people who stand up for civil liberties, like you and other people, I, I share uh, your perspective. At the same time, uh, this, this illness uh, is, is really dangerous. Uh, but if you start criticizing, you kind of have two choices, or you go into camps of the libertarian, or you kind of end up, um, and then you, you you know, the people I deal with who, who, who are totally in favor of the lockdown, and you're talking about people who work in university, intelligence, most intelligentsia in university, tend to be very much in favor of the lockdown. So you, you stay away as a label like a potential uh, supporter of uh, murdering people. So it's a very uh, polarized uh, kind of uh, debate. And 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 so for me, what what I would what I admire about what you're trying to do is you're trying to find a balance between these two positions uh, in a kind of more sophisticated manner. Uh, but at the same time, uh, what this debate seemed to show is that we are not, we need to really be more sophisticated with the criticism of the government because, okay, you can criticize at the level of politics. And I think it is very important because if you look at it in the political sphere, apart from people who go and break, break the rules and they get arrested in the streets in London and the big cities, the only in the intelligentsia, in the political elites, the only people are now section of the conservative party. You know, that's where the, the opposition seems to be. And I'm, you know, I'm really very surprised. But I think for, for people who are outside, um, we need to have more a more sophisticated critique of some of the policy that the government has put forward, particularly on the question of finding a balance of protecting the vulnerable. Uh, so what I found uh, interesting is what you said about the importance of protecting the vulnerable, and we know what they are, we know more or less what the categories are. Uh, and here, uh, some experience could be learned from other countries. I know that everybody, because most, most of your libertarians want to look at Sweden, but the reality is if you look at China, I mean, China at the end of the day was successful in some, somehow, they did manage it. So how did they do it? The isolation strategy, the protection of people. I mean, okay, they are a, a, a authoritarian regime. You know, if they stay, you stay at home, they lock you at home and they feed you, they do everything for you. But if we were to, if you were to say protection of the vulnerable, how is that for you different here in a democracy? Because we, we cannot be like them, you know? And, and I think that, um, you know, we need to have more um, practical intervention of practical solution to the problem, you know, criticizing the government of civil liberties, but at the same time, accepting that some lockdown will need to be, some kind of measure of restriction will be Need to be introduced, but for me, what's important is that you focus yep. on the protection of the vulnerable. Sorry. Great. Uh, th thanks a lot, Javan. The, the yeah, urge yeah. to um, the the attempt for us all to be more sophisticated is something we, we all certainly can can go for. I can get behind that. Um, Ella, I'll try you again. The point I just wanted to make was linked to what Paul was talking about in terms of there's the immediate the immediate issue of the pandemic, um, but the political trends underneath it are. Uh, Paul's talked about it being a kind of a practice run or you know a preliminary event before future debates about uh, the climate and and um, climate change and the restrictions around that but actually I think it's you know it's also a playing out of trends that have been there for a very long time so something that links both what um, Rob and Mike have talked about is the 
and the thing that I'm most worried about actually is the kind of crisis of trust. Um, not just because that's going to play a big role in relation to the rolling out of the vaccine. Um, you know, the, 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 the vaccine is this incredibly exciting thing. I mean, Jesus, look what, look what we can do when we have the political will and the funding and all the, you know, all the cards fitting into place. But there's, there's uh, no guarantee that it's going to be plain sailing on one of the big issues is because there's not a huge amount of, we're not in a good place in relation to public trust. Um, that's been a problem for quite a long time. You know, all those, all the years of people being in some ways healthily skeptical of um, politics and that kind of, you know, that almost cliched phrase of you can't trust them to do anything. And um, all of that is going to have quite a damaging effect um, when it comes to actually implementing large scale, a large scale public health plan like rolling out a vaccine. Um, but I also think the thing that what, you know, I keep sounding like I'm worried a lot, we're all worried a lot, but the thing that is worrying me is the crisis of solidarity and maybe this is where you know you can't exactly as as mike has pointed out you can't change the fact that this is a novel virus you can't just click your fingers and make it go away you can't be flippant about these things but something that on an on an individual level um in which you don't have to be an epidemiologist or a politician or someone in a position of power to do is to tackle the issue of social solidarity and i don't mean that in a kind of uh namby pamby flippant way but the thing that is concerning is that this is making us all a little bit, not just isolated in the obvious way of um, what lockdowns do, but there's a kind of growing sense that I want to challenge among people of, well, it hasn't affected me, or I'm not in the, I'm not in the particular group that has to be shielded, or you know, my friend has had it and they're fine. There's a the loss of that kind of quite positive thing that we had at the start um, of the first lockdown in March was that we're all in this together. What you know, there's a sense in which that that's, it's not going to work if it's kind of government mandated with people banging their pots outside on a Thursday, but uh, an actual sense of people organising on a whether it's a local level or talking about what needs to happen in their communities, that is a, a means to get out of this without just relying on the government. It's kind of a building up of that sense of public trust, both trusting the public to do the right thing and make sensible decisions, but also having trust in ourselves to get through this without that sounding wishy-washy is I actually think one of the fundamental ways in which it can change. Otherwise, uh, I see us heading down quite a dark road in terms of social cohesion. And, and you know, that's not going to work with the, the rolling out of a vaccine. So just on a on a kind of fundamental what can you do level as someone who's not either Dominic Cummings or Jonathan Van Tan. Um, championing a sense of social solidarity and the importance of that, which the government does not understand because they think that polling is the same as talking to people, is I think going to be very crucial in the weeks and months and Jesus, maybe even years to come. Thanks, Ella. Um, look, we're, we're, so we're getting to some crunch time. There's loads of hands going up. I do want to make sure we get the panel in. So I'm going to ask the panel if they can sort of give us a, a response to one question or develop one point that they um, really want to hammer home. Uh, obviously, you won't be able to answer everything, but just try and move the discussion on in whichever way you see fit, then we'll come out and we'll get some uh, hands as quickly as possible. So Rob, first to you. One thing that would be very, because I don't think that the government's going to go for a herd immunity strategy um, anyway. So in some respects, it's a kind of uh, academic discussion, but there are things that the government could do that would be uh, allow a lot more freedom and also make their, um, their policies uh, much more effective. First of all, changing the isolation rules, I think is really important so that, that people isolate for a few days and then Get tested to see if they're they're negative or not. Um, so that because the the prospect of losing two weeks work wages or whatever is 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 a big big problem and people are 
as a result, um, not not uh, following the rules. Um, things like red teaming debate in in governments. At the moment, there seems to be this kind of groupthink going on in government, and it would be really good to have some kind of devil's advocate to really challenge the, the, the evidence on on these things. And equally, we could test at airports. I think that that, that would give us a lot more freedom to travel, for example. Um, and, and also supporting those who have to isolate because they've got a positive test or because they're a contact of somebody who's had a positive test so that they don't have any need to, to, to go out to work or whatever. Um, and also, I think we need to start checking the testing because there's all sorts of uh, queries have been raised about it. I'd really like to know the answer one way or the other to that. You know, is the testing accurate or not? Is there a problem with false positives? Um, and, and I think that that could be relatively straightforwardly done. Um, to, to double check uh, uh, testing and also double check um, testing post mortem, I'm afraid as well, to make sure that the pe that people who have been indicated as uh, COVID nineteen deaths are really COVID nineteen deaths, so that we can really really know where we stand on these things. Great, and thanks, Rob. Uh, over to Emily. Yeah, so I, I, I want to go back to Mike's point about the scale of COVID-19 justifying the focus and, and the exclusion of, of looking at other risks, because I, I just want to make this point that the data we're working on the basis of is such poor quality. It makes no distinction between admissions and deaths with COVID or because of COVID. And I can't say it's not, not a problem or it's a small problem. I think based on the way the data is being collected and reported, we don't actually know the scale of the problem. And that makes it very difficult. Um, and, and so, you know, making any kind of assertion around what the data means for us for, with, with the COVID dashboard is really hard. We have to include caveats in everything because the data is so weird in how it's collected and reported. It doesn't mean what, what you would think it means from the headline. And, and I really, I'm disappointed that the government isn't gathering better data and, and distinguishing between this, this with COVID and because of COVID issue. Uh, and I think that will probably be my, my biggest ask going forward. If, if, you know, if, if there was a government minister here with us today, that's what I would ask them to do because it would make decision-making much easier. Great, uh, thanks, uh, Emily. Over to uh, where you were just on my screen and now you've gone, Alan. There you are, okay. Uh, the public needs to be involved in society. You can't just pass a coronavirus act and then refuse to debate it, even when lots of people have said you, they want to debate it. Um, there's, I think that what we need to do is have a voice of reason back into the overall discussion in terms of true evidence, a rational approach all round, balanced, calm, scientific, but also being honest about policy and the distinction between the two and the decisions that are made and the risks and the concerns and the reasons why people are grown up. When you're honest with people, people can all make decisions about what they're prepared to do and go along with. And you can be, uh, it, true leadership is being assessed on that basis. I think that the point about um, polling is really important. I think one of the things is the government is currently shaped by both the idea that some people have said, a majority they think have said that uh, they favour more restrictions, but that always depends how you ask the question. If it's if you say, would you like to see your grandchildren at Christmas? They may not answer in the same way. The second thing is they're worried, they're terrified that they're going to be held accountable for deaths and not being seen to do enough. Um, and I think the thing is that we have to be really honest. We've, there's other polling that, you know, recovery has done uh, in the recent period that has shown different results to that. A majority saying they don't agree with lockdown, like 
UN and even WHO saying it's they're not they're a last resort and they're very drastic. But I think that having campaigns that involve different people is really important. If you look at the four women that set up us for them, they were very, very uh, primarily responsible, I think, in many ways to uh, ensuring that the government did not do a U-turn and that schools opened up again and that younger children did not have to wear masks at school. Um, they're involved actually with recovery. Uh, and the point about recovery is that it's a broad alliance and coalition of all sorts of people, scientists and doctors, uh, as well as people from different business sectors, people from the arts and education and citizens. Um, and just to say that my experience in having lobbied and, and, and uh, uh, campaigned in the last few years, when you're in a trade arena or in a simple sector is that you can get kind of put into a context so you would want to do that because you want to make money or you kind of get treated as a silo. And I think the opportunity now for the public to have its voice across the board to engage and say that the public is grown up and sensible and important with this and we can be reasonable and rational and that we need to be taken seriously and that that we can shape government to, to, to go in a certain direction. And, you know, every time they've done a U-turn, it's because they're panicking and they're not sure about their position and they're not principled as it happens. And they're often responding because of what they think it might look like. Sometimes it's practical, but quite often it's that. And I think that we should insist on actually a much more sensible scientific evidence-based reaction, but also based on the different needs that we have in society, a balance of all of those, a consideration of all those together, and that everyone who's on this conversation also, they should get involved with a campaign like Recovery and have our voices heard and insist upon that in a calm, reasonable way to inject some uh, balance and a, and a reasonable approach that we can all shape and not just have things presented to us. Great. Th thanks for that, Alan. Um, I, I just want to, if I can... I just want to come in uh, briefly just to uh, add something to my own as a little, I guess, a challenge is maybe some of the points that are going to come along later, because it seems to me that we can propose as many solutions as we like, but there is a huge gap in the middle of it, which is how on earth does any of that happen? Because we know that we live in a moment where the government's only possible response is one of demobilization, because it doesn't, it lacks any of the institutional capability, any of the broader popular legitimacy, any of the systems of authority, any of the creative will, any of the economic dynamism to be able to actually get things moving. And so we have this, we have this issue where people can see or highlight solutions or policies that might make sense, but they require mobilizing people, they require engaging people. And without that bedrock of engagement, what, well, what can happen? And we saw obviously at the beginning of the pandemic when people were asking to volunteer. And of course the government and indeed ourselves were like, nobody knows what to do with all of these people. And so we can have, I think, as many uh, discussions we like, and we're doing very well on, on the points of data, on different things, small things we do differently, but it's sort of incumbent upon all of us, I think, to have a long, hard look in the mirror or, and to sort of see the, what's been laid bare by this moment, which is the sort of true state of the demobilization um, and the sort of lack and the collapse of the, of the broader political environment that would allow us to collectively forge any kind of solution going forward. I don't want to be alarmist. I don't want to like put a downer on the situation, but it's like, I do think it's a challenge that we need to wake up for and how we can move forward, given what we know about the state of, of politics and the state of institutions today. Um, I'll come over to Jeff. Okay, yeah, well, well, just to say, I just want to say something quickly on uh, Sweden and trust. Firstly, I'm happy to accept that this is the worst pandemic, probably the only pandemic in my lifetime. 
and even going back, my, both my parents were born in the 1920s and they never lived through a pandemic like this. So that's definitely the case. I also accept Noah's point on opinion polls. Whilst it's true, people are polled at home and you could say, well, there's biases there and everybody's watching the telly and all the rest of it. Broadly, the majority of people support the lockdown or the government's measures and it is incumbent on us to, to, to try and, uh, those who don't support it, uh, to, to try and influence that state of affairs. The point I would make about Sweden, which is different from what other people have said, is that at the start, there was a sense that Sweden, whether it's a high trust society or whatever, tried to engage with their own people in dealing with this problem on a voluntary basis and treated everybody as fellow human beings who were rational, could make creative decisions and, and do something about it. And yes, there were the death rate may have been higher at some than some countries or lower than some countries, but having a, that different approach, you know, to me made a big difference. If you look at the UK, the minute we had locked down in March, and what somebody described on uh, social media the other day as rabble control came in, we're just treated as millions of bodies who are kept in our place, forced to be distant, not allowed to engage creatively to do anything about it. And I thought uh, Josephine spoke very well earlier about schools and the way people, well-meaning people could have creative solutions in schools, workplaces and elsewhere. We were just treated as bodies who were put in our place, told to keep apart for however long it was. And then occasionally we're allowed to come out and do a few things. The minute that happens, you demobilize the whole of society. And we have to get to a situation, which is Jacob's just, it's a challenge Jacob's just made, where we begin, as other people have said, to remobilize people to, in, to discuss seriously how we can best do education, how we can best do work, how we can best do cultural activities in the current situation. As long as we're all isolated and stuck away, it's almost impossible to solve that problem. So we need that different approach, a more, a more trusting approach. And it's that social side of it, which has been problematic in, in UK and increasingly in other countries around the world from the start. And we haven't, you know, as long as people are treated like that, as long as things are set up like that, it's, it's very difficult to break through it and different campaigns and projects can do it. But we have to realize the extent of that uh, whilst quite happily accepting that we're in the, in the midst of a very horrible pandemic. Great. Uh, thanks, Jeff. I'll, I'll, I'll keep going and try and rattle through. Um, we've got a lot of hands to get through, but I'm sure if everyone's sort of punchy, then we can get through it. So, uh, Luke. Um, I'll try and be as punchy as I can be. Uh, I have to say, the, I don't recognise the elephant in the room being underestimating the scale of the virus. If, it, if anything, it's the inverse, that people are underestimating the impact of the um, lockdown. Uh, the health consequences of the lockdown and the, uh, I, I see that people who uh, talk about the scale of the virus very rarely talk about the impact of the lockdown and Rob you say there's no um, sort of case-demic I'm just interested from a selfish perspective for two points that have sort of stuck with me on the science and epidemiology about which I know very little accepting I uh, completely accept that I know very little about it Firstly, measuring F so the uh, I know a little bit about forensic pathology and I know that even in um, cases where you might think the cause of death is extremely obvious um, that is a very complex process and I've heard forensic pathologists refer to it as something of a term of art rather than a term of science and that seems to make things extremely complicated in the context of COVID 
And secondly, the point made by John Lee sort of builds on that, which is to say that there is a sort of cycle of vir virus related death. Now, I know that there's arguments over excess deaths uh, every year, but what do you make of the argument about the fact that there are a group of people in society who will uh, sadly perish at, at the hands of a virus uh, in the course of every year? And that that, that has a, a, something of a life of its own, which isn't necessarily subject to control. And then thirdly, I'm just talking about this idea about remobilizing sort of Jace, uh, 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 Jacob's challenge. I think the problem is we're in proceeding with an entirely false premise, which is about whether this is about um, control or no control over people's lives. The reality is the, the question is who decides what the restrictions should be. I mean, Mike's right to say that there is inevitably going to be some restrictions. But the question we surely should be asking is why uh, we should be told what the restrictions should be rather than deciding for ourselves. You know, I can I will very clearly restrict myself to not seeing my elderly parents in a high point of this pandemic, or I will make decisions about who I will shield from the context in which I will see them, etc. But I might also I might also make the decision that seeing uh, eight people in a room is perfectly safe, whereas uh, six, eight, nine, ten. So. Um, you know, the, the, isn't the question surely not um, whether we should have control or not, but actually, should we decide how to make those decisions or shouldn't we? And that doesn't necessarily mean no restrictions. It just means a more democratic model of how to decide that. And then I think just very lastly, I would pose a challenge to anyone supporting unequivocally the lockdown in its current form to sort of set a level at what you think the punishment should be for, say, an 18 year old attending an anti-lockdown demonstration. Because the reality is we have industrial scales of people going through the courts at the moment, um, being punished criminal convictions that will stay on their records forever, how it could have absolutely catastrophic impacts on their lives. Um, what do you think the punishment should be for someone attending a demonstration? Or alternatively, what should the punishment be for someone attending a meeting with seven rather than six people? Great, thanks, uh, Luke. I'll keep things moving. So over to Jan. Mehdi said at the very beginning, you could pass it on, you know, it, it is a very dangerous thing and you could pass it on to anybody. And I guess I want to echo Luke in saying, why would you? I, I think that, that we have people who are social distancing in their houses with three generations of people and they're managing to protect their elderly parents from getting COVID, even though their children go to school. People find all sorts of imaginative ways to avoid, to, to avoid infecting their elderly you know, their, their relatives, the people they love. And I, I'm just astonished by the government's assumption that you can't just tell people that, you know, what the facts are and leave it to their common sense. Um, I'm struck by um, just passing examples. It seems to me that using the state as a blunt instrument, the way that, the way that it's been done, means that the whole thing about masks has turned into a huge issue and simple things like ventilation and washing your hands seem to be forgotten. Every, you know, dentist offices I've been in last week, being on a tube train, windows always shut, everybody wearing masks. You know, it, 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 the whole, if you use this, if you, if you don't trust people to use their common sense and you just terrify them and then give them stupid, you know, stupid rules to follow, then, people that you are going to get um, chaos and I'm I would just like to state the, the basic obvious that, uh, that that democracy is far more important than however many people um, are going to die of COVID and I know that it's a serious disease but I think that 
as other people have said, it's the, the response has been completely disproportionate. And the effect on democracy, the democracy could be fixing all this. We could be have, having hints in the newspapers about clever ways of protecting your elderly and, and beloved people, beloved friends from COVID, but we're not having that. We're just having terrifying statistics on television. And it could be so, so much better and so different. That's all I have to say. Thanks. Thanks, Jen. I'll, I'll try and give it some, and just let's keep them as brief as possible so we can get everyone in. Um, so, Rosie. Um, I think one of the things is that one of the worst things about this is that we are all sitting at home very frustrated. But I think part of the frustration is that we know some of the situation is because of past political decisions and past lack of debate and political involvement in things. So, for instance, we might want to say to the government, and we, you know, I've done this and quite often I think it's a sort of brick wall about, well, we just can't. We can't mobilise things right now in, in a way we might want to. So, for instance, if we wanted to put uh, a big group of furloughed people and say to them, right, come and help with the health service, um, we, don't, we can't even provide PPE for the health service itself, let alone um, do something, you know, fairly safely to bring in a big voluntary force to support overstretched um, hospitals or, or, you know, the health service more generally, or, um, or even with um, supporting care homes. So we've heard a lot today um, about um, the fact that people can't go and visit and do that, all that ad hoc help that they're doing with their relatives in care homes, that has been lost. Um, and, and there's a lot of things that are just now up in our faces about the state of the country. So the mm -hmm. way care homes are run, the way they're staffed, uh, NHS, uh, you know, shortages of nursing staff that, that's chronic and, and has been ongoing. And it just strikes me that anywhere we try to look at a different way of organising things now, we've, we've got such a long time scale really to do it and to, to make it better that it's not it's not something we can do immediately so it just passed past lack of political engagement and debate on all sorts of things and, and that's create part of the situation we're in okay then nicely made as i, say, I want to keep going as, as quickly as possible not least because um, mike Fitzpatrick, who's been the subject of a little bit of backs and forth, I want to get in at the moment, and he's currently sort of last on the hand. So let's, let's be as quick as possible, Stephen. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, so there was a point made earlier on about the modelling being spot on, and I just wanted to take that up because, in my opinion, the modelling has been absolutely polling. So the centrepiece of that has been Neil Ferguson's effort. He predicted uh, 500,000 deaths under a do-nothing scenario. Uh, he predicted 250,000 under a scenario which was better than feasible. So under the better, uh, a scenario which was better than the best, 250,000, which is way off. And um, the fact of the matter is that there are many, um, many sorts of questions which are more or less beyond the, the technical capabilities of, of scientists. It's not difficult to ask, ask such questions. Uh, and that creates a breeding ground for ideology. That creates a knowledge vacuum into which uh, I think ideologically possessed people uh, find a, a, a welcoming um, environment there. 
Um, the other point is that they create models that are so complex and have so many levers and switches uh, within them that they can more or less predict whatever they like. So it, it kind of gives them um, carte blanche. It also insulates them from criticism, right? Because these models are so complex that it takes an uncommon grasp of, of mathematics and computer science. It takes many, many hours of study of these things to actually get to grips with them. Uh, it completely insulates them from criticism from, from lay people. What I fear has happened in our case is that uh, the tone has been set by Neil Ferguson initially and then um, groupthink and policy inertia more or less taken over. I fear that there is now a yep. tremendous social cost uh, of, of coming out against any lockdown measures or restrictions. And I, I worry that we are spending uh, a quantity of resources in this that, that's truly morally repugnant. And I mean that uh, with the full force of my words there, truly morally repugnant, because when you think of the opportunity cost of what we could have done with those resources, uh, we could have achieved so much more. Um, okay, great. Stephen, can, can we leave it there? That was a great contribution. Thanks so much. Sure. I just want to keep it moving. Um, over to Nico. Um, yeah, just I would quickly reinforce Josephine and Rob and Jan's comment about being creative. This isn't a zero-sum game. We can do some things better and uh, win on both fronts. Um, I wanted to take up two things Mike Fitzpatrick said. He said, your individual choice means someone else has to carry the burden of mortality or is likely to. Um, my sense is that's what we do in society generally around healthcare and infectious diseases and many other areas, not least uh, motor vehicles and so on. I'm not sure why that shouldn't be the case with COVID. Obviously, we want people to be responsible. And I think some of the points made by Jan uh, and others allude to the fact that if you trust people more, I think Alan said this too, they will tend to step up to that. And Mike also talked about specifying the level of constraint that you're ready to accept. And yes, I do think we don't need, we shouldn't be uh, idealistic about this, but people who advocate lockdowns and so on very rarely say what level of health, societal and economic impact they're prepared to accept, let alone try and calculate that. Whereas in healthcare, we do actually calculate those things, which is why certain parts of the country don't have certain access to certain treatments and so on, why investment is made by NICE uh, or as a result of NICE in certain sectors and not in other therapies and so on. So I think it's beholden on Mike to say what level of impacts, externalities he's prepared to accept as a result of this, uh, or, or what he advocates. And finally, on the infection facility Quickly, ratios, yeah. um, uh, Professor John Ioannidis, who Mike will be familiar with at Stanford, uh, I'm told, uh, now calculates that the IFR is only 0.15% for COVID, as opposed to 0.1% for flu. Uh, is that incorrect? Am I misunderstanding that? Whereas Mike said it's, I think, 10, 10 times more infectious. Uh, sorry, great. fatality Thanks. is 10 times greater. Yeah, great, got it, Nico. Thanks. Okay, over to uh, Brendan. I really want to challenge this idea that lockdown skeptics don't take COVID-19 seriously. I can't speak for all lockdown skeptics, but from my perspective, it's precisely the seriousness of the virus that makes the response to it so incredibly disappointing and devastating, because this is a virus which poses a huge challenge to our society, and yet society has been decommissioned. This is a virus which poses huge questions for community life in terms of how we act as a community, how we relate to each other, how we negotiate risk as a community, and yet community life has been suspended. So. 
when people say, listen, this virus is serious, that's why this response is taking place, that makes no sense to me because that's not how society, or certainly that's not how a healthy society should respond to existential threats. What it, how it should respond to existential threats is by saying, uh, this is serious, let's galvanize and mobilize and work together. And instead, what we've had during this period is say, is effectively officialdom saying, this is very serious, so we don't need you. We don't need your communities. We don't need your individual choices. We don't need your input at all. It's too serious for that. And um, Mike Fitzpatrick, someone I have enormous respect for, he talked about the collateral damage. And I think too often in relation to the collateral damage, we focus too much on the economic and health consequences of lockdown, which I think will be quite severe. But I think the far greater collateral damage will be on the culture of freedom. And this goes far beyond civil liberties. I think civil liberties is a little bit of a red herring in this discussion because we're not talking simply about the right to protest or the right to petition MPs and all those other very important civil liberties. We're talking about the culture of freedom, the confidence of people to engage in big questions, the confidence of communities to come together and discuss the challenges that they face. That culture of freedom is being utterly decimated by the current approach to uh, COVID-19. And I think we underestimate that at our peril. Uh, just finally, um, think about the HIV AIDS crisis, which was far less um, impactful on society than the COVID-19 crisis. Th that crisis gave rise to an extraordinary impact on human engagement and community life through the cult of safe sex, the alienation of people from each other, a culture of distrust, a culture of suspicion, which ran through and still runs through society and the education system now, 30, 40 years later. The consequences of how we're dealing with COVID-19, I think, will be even more severe in terms of the decommissioning of democratic life and the suspension of um, people's input in how, to, how their lives and how their communities are organized. That is going to be the long-term consequence of what we're doing. And I think that will be more devastating than the virus itself. Great, for, thanks for that, Brendan, very helpful. Um, to, to the panel, I will try and get the last of the hands that are up here and then we'll bring you in for some summations. So I hope that's all right. Um, it's over next to John Rowlands. Very much the theme here is this pendulum where um, the left hand of the pen pendulum is very much in the control of of the population um, with inane instruction or what appears to be inane instruction and the right hand is providing um, uh, the, the population with the tools to enable them to manage their risk and uh, I think the majority of the audience tonight are mainly in that uh, latter camp. Now on the left hand camp, uh, side of the pendulum we we have uh, supposedly informed by science science which doesn't seem to be dreadfully transparent patchy let's say on the right hand side it would be so useful if some of the huge sums of money which have been spent on so-called uh, moonshot uh, massive testing test tracing etc could just be spent on really providing robust analysis of the spread of infection and allowing the population to really understand the, the, uh, the risk of spreading uh, in term, and you know, the, the little bits of data that are coming out that indicate that well-managed public places are actually quite safe. Let's make this evident 
and, and let's make evident where the, the spread of infection is really happening and, and inform the population so they can take control of, of their own, own lives. Okay, thank you. Thanks a lot for that, uh, John. I'll come straight over to Phil Mullen. Thanks, uh, Jacob. Thanks uh, for a great discussion. Um, we're getting on to almost a year since this catastrophe began. And, and what strikes me is that there are some things which are just as confusing and uh, unclear as when it started. And there are other things though, which are incredibly clear. Um, I mean, the unclarities, the complexities, clearly as this discussion tonight uh, has shown, relates to the nature of the disease, levels of immunity, levels of mortality, levels of uh, uh, ability to uh, come up with drugs to deal with it. You know, the, the uncertainties about whether this vaccine will uh, uh, have a long-lasting effect and so on. So there's a huge amount of uncertainties around which more and more debate will need to happen and tonight is, is a contributor to that. But there are also, I think, things which we can be very, very clear about. And I think the people who've been stressing the um, uh, impact on democracy are those which I'm most sympathetic to tonight because I think that is the thing which there should be no question of balance about. I mean, I can understand there are things to balance between you know, what policy measures to take, what uh, 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 civil liberties to accept the temporary infringement of. But on the question of the erosion of democratic rights and the further erosion which we've seen over the, over, well, in Britain over the last, what, seven months, that is something which there should be no balance about. There's, there's not, nothing to which to have a debate about. This is what, what Brennan called a decommissioning of, the, of people has been taken to a further extreme. Uh, and and it's, uh, it, it, so it's, it's the type of governance which I think we should be focusing on most, the way in which policy decisions have been, have been made, which have been made on a question of ignoring people, ignoring in many cases parliament, uh, and deferring to the science, deferring to the models, deferring to, to the experts as to what to do. And I think it is an expansion, an, an extension of that, which is uh, the thing which is in the medium term most worrying. I think it's just, just to give it, it's, it's ironic that in a year in which we are just about getting away from the Brussels excuse um, of, uh, of uh, technocratic governance, that governments have been saying for 30 years, we can't do this because of Brussels, or we can do this because we've been told to do it by Brussels. Just as we're getting away from that, we've had a reinforcement of that, this idea that policy is determined by the experts, by the technocrats, by the science, by the models, tell us this and that. So the Brussels excuse is being replaced by the science excuse, being replaced by the model excuse and so on. And that I think is the really, really dangerous thing. As Paul Reeves said earlier, we're gonna see this run again uh, uh, with climate change and with all the other debates are gonna come. So that I think is the thing which we're most clear about, most worried about and most active to contest the type of governance that this whole experience has reinforced, which has been one that's been incredibly anti-democratic. Thanks for that, uh, Phil. Very, very, um, very punchily put. I'll come on, come back to uh, Mike Fitzpatrick, who's sort so, of, as, as we all can see, turned into a bit of a locus of some of the discussion tonight. But anyway, uh, Mike, you probably want to respond to some of that. Um, yes, I think there's, there's a real danger here of catastrophizing about the lockdown. You know, rather on the one hand, minimising the problem of COVID and catastrophizing about the lockdown, and we hear this speculations about the vast number of, of lockdown deaths going to be caused by cancer and other diseases, the devastating effect on education and children's mental health and all that. And in Brendan's terms, the destruction of civil liberties and indeed of reason itself seems to me considerably over the top. 
there's no reason why measures of quarantine and social distancing, which are the only measures that can control this particular infectious disease, should have these catastrophic effects. I completely agree the whole thing's been badly managed in all sorts of ways that everybody touched upon, and there's lots of, of ways it can be much better managed. But I don't think there's any necessity to regard the introduction of, uh, as I say, relatively simple measures to control an infectious disease seem to be, need to be interpreted in, in such catastrophic terms. There's a loss of democratic control, absolutely. That is, as we know, far from confined to the issue of COVID. It's a pervasive problem of contemporary society. That we've got a, 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 a zombie political parties, political parties which historically would provide some sort of mediation between the people and the state in terms of the debates and discussions of particular political issues and, and could provide a forums in which these sort of measures could, that doesn't exist. We, we see the, 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 the very token of democracy in this in local government is the figure of Andy Burnham, the, the mayor of Manchester is a sort of scintilla of democracy that um, provides some sort of local resistance and even if it's narrowly restricted to quibbling over the compensation for the, the measures that are introduced. So that's a that, and the, the great symbol of the, de the democratic deficit is the abdication of parliament through all this and the, the fact it basically has suspended itself for the duration. So the whole framework within which democratic control and democratic discussion took, could take place has been evacuated. That is unquestionably a very major problem, which has been thrown up by the COVID thing and predates it and is much wider than it. I would differ, distinguish between that issue and actually the issue of scientific debate and controversy and the issue of transparency, which a number of people have alluded to. I've been very struck by the quality of the scientific debate in this controversy, very much compared with previous issues. In the, you know, if you go back to the days of AIDS and HIV and mad cows, there's it took ages for any response for, for dispute of expert positions, controversies between different experts. They were very resistant to any kind of public discussion. If you look at the forums that have, have one of the great contributions of social media, even the Twitter, there's a, a, a challenging of scientific positions at a very early stage. If you look at uh, things, the journal, various, uh, Jenny mentioned, uh, Hennigan and Jefferson and the Spectator. I, I would have more patience with them if they'd respond to the criticism that have made of their positions. But at least there, there, there are forums in which these controversies have been well and truly aired. The Barrington Declaration has been made. Everybody's read it. The John Snow people have made their positions. The, they've got SAGE. We've got independent SAGE. The, the SAGE itself is remarkably transparent. And I've never known an area of scientific discussion take place in the way that SATA, they even disclosed the membership after some reluctance. Now all the papers are in the public realm. It's the quality of scientific debate in this issue that I've never seen in any other issues. What one, if I could be forgiven for making one final point, yeah, one area in which the democratic debate has been somewhat constrained, I might say is in this Academy of Ideas tonight, having a platform of three people who are on the not to say it's binary, but on the sceptical side of the controversy. I agree. Unfortunately, Frankie couldn't be with us. But even even with Frankie, I, we don't know what Frankie would have said. But three out of four people on one side of the debate doesn't seem like a very wide democratic debate. And I could say, finally, the one place where you won't find a very wide discussion of the issues involved in this is on Spike, which is uh, where only one side of this controversy can be heard and which has scoured the earth 
define mavericks and eccentric, putting the most extreme skeptical positions of very dubious scientific authority and rather discredited our quality of scientific discussion in this whole controversy. Oh, well, thanks, Mike. I obviously can't speak for spikes, but we try very, very hard to get a very wide range of panelists and ask an awful lot, number of people, many of whom, uh, precisely for the reasons that we had this debate, didn't want to speak. Um, well, about you couldn't, what, you couldn't what, ask me. And, uh, well, well, we'll be sure to involve you in, in the very near future, Mike. We'd love to. Um, I'll come over to Liz uh, Barber, who's going to be the last person, I think, from the floor, and then we'll get, the, um, we'll get some of the panellists. Yeah, the, the word that stands out there from um, the last speaker was catastrophe. I can't say it, but you know the word. I mean, we hit the ground running, catastrophizing the way that this was going to go. That was the starting point of this whole thing. It was the starting point of how we were going to deal with it. And so it's gone on and on. And at every single turn, it seems to me that, you know, when somebody or anybody has suggested there could be a better way or a, a, a less rigid way or a, or a less damaging way, they've all been shouted down um, and told in short order they're gonna kill everybody's granny and they obviously don't give a toss. Well, that to me is how you silence any other opinion or suggestion. And that's been the way that this whole thing to me, it seems has been ran. And what also seems to me to be the case is that whereas people can see what they've been shown on the TV, they can hear what they've been told about the immediacy of where we were in March and where we were, you know, in the summer, brief interlude, and where we're heading now, um, all backed up with the reliable uh, prophecies of Neil Ferguson, um, people can can take that on board. They can see what they're being taught in it. What they don't seem to be able to do, though, in, in anything in a fairly abstract way, is to understand what the price of this is going to be. And I think that's because nobody's actually had the opportunity to tell them what the price of this is going to be in the long term. And again, as Brendan was saying, it's not just in financial costs. It's any numbers of ways, including you know, the democracy and the democratic freedoms that we've been used to having. And the appalling um, speed at which it seems to me people have been prepared to give them up for some promise of safety that, you know, really the government's failed to deliver on pretty much every level. And, and one of the things that's depressed me most of all, apart from the pubs being shut and all the rest of it, is just how quickly and easily that happened. I didn't think this was the country that I lived in, and this was the way that the majority of people thought. Thanks for that, Liz. Um, right, I, I think it's probably time that we get the panel back in and ask them for their sort of uh, final thoughts and what they'd like to leave us with. Obviously, we've had a wide range of discussion. We've had lots of good points on many sides, and there's way too much for the um, for the the panel to capture all of it. But kind of what do you want to leave, leave us with is the question and how do we go forward from here as we posed right at the beginning? Um, Rob, I'll do this in the order in which you spoke. So Rob, I will come to you first. Uh, thanks. Um, I, I very much uh, agree with people who have been talking about the demobilization of society and that, and that a, um, a creative and uh, sort of community-based um, possibilities for doing, working in different ways has been therefore um, you know, not been possible. And I, 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 was, um, I, was, I was struck by this demobilization. The way people are reacting is a bit like when the trade unions kind of disappeared and people ended up 
sort of making their way in the world by through their own individual efforts rather than through trying to any collective um, efforts and uh, the I, th I think people are working their way around the rules or um, are trying to cope with the rules in their own ways and, and quietly not really obeying them and things like that and that's how we're coping with it because we really had to deal with these things forefrontally it would be a lot a lot harder um i was asked specifically about case demics i mean i don't think it's a case demic in the sense that i think that there is a real that there, there really is a virus out there it's a really bad thing that's happened that nobody invented not even the chinese and the um and that the, the, the this the second wave was pretty inevitable i don't think it's going to be it's clear that it's it's not taken off in the same way as that first wave did um but but because it could run longer and because it's running into winter, obviously we, we need to be, we should be concerned about the, the potential harms that could be done. But, um, I, but I also accept that there seems to be legitimate criticisms of the testing process of the way in which uh, COVID uh, debts are allocated to COVID-19 and whatever. That could be reasonably easily clarified one way or the other if there was a, a mood in government to try and do that. And at the moment, there doesn't seem to be, which is a shame. Uh, hence my... Uh, call for a devil's advocate kind of thing going on in in um, uh, Whitehall. Uh, in terms, of, I mean, the point that Neil Ferguson made in parliamentary evidence back in um, April or May was that he was asked about it. He said yes, probably half, even two thirds of the people who are dying of COVID nineteen or been you know, sort of labelled as COVID nineteen deaths would have died this year anyway. That, that doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, that doesn't mean there's, there's not thousands and thousands of people who, who would not have died this year, whose lives, lives have been significantly foreshortened by uh, this disease. But, it, but having that in, in mind in the discussion is that well, what price are we going to pay in terms of freedom and democracy for, um, for those things? Um, and I do th really agree with Brendan that the, the, the long-term consequences of this in establishing the idea that our free freedoms can easily be given up um, is very, very concerning. Um, and I think that that could be the, the real long-term harm of all this, quite, quite besides the, the very real economic harm that's be, being done that will take a long time to unwind um, and the, the harm to people's lives in so many myriad ways from the lockdowns and the restrictions. How do you account for... How do you count a, a, a loss of life in, a, in an equation versus the loss of somebody's sa life savings as their business folds and the devastating impact that has on them? You know, we're, we're not we're not looking at the full picture. We're focusing on a few statistics rather than on the broader um, picture of what the what the policies are doing and how we could have smarter and more sensible policies that do not undermine our freedoms so uh, terribly. On me. Th thanks for that, Rob, um, and thanks for all your contributions tonight. I'll, I'll, I'll move on to um, to Emily. Yeah, so I, I think I just want to sum up by saying there seems to be this this fear from government, but from some people, um, not necessarily here, but but people who were supporting the lockdowns, fear of a loss of control um, from the centre, and this idea that losing that control from the centre and trusting people um, to do the right things would create some kind of catastrophe. Uh, and I just wanted to know, you know, what the consequences have been of not trusting people. You know, the, the government has taken their judgment of risks and substituted that for our own individual judgment of risk. And that's led to 
lots of non-COVID deaths. Um, you know, we were told to stay at home and, and protect the NHS and people have died because of that. You know, there's the, the non-COVID deaths, there's the social costs, there's the economic costs, there's all of the things we've talked about. Um, and some projections are saying, you know, that the lockdown deaths, as, as they're called, may end up being higher than the COVID deaths. Um, and so I, I, I really just want to reinforce this point that as individuals, we're much better placed to make these assessments of our own risks for ourselves and make the decisions for ourselves. You know, that was one of the question who questions who decides or who should decide. And, and I think it's us as individuals and with all the creative solutions and, and all the rest of it that's been talked about. Thanks, Emily. A, a great note to end on from you. I'll, I'll, we'll finish off with Alan. Yeah, the irony, the irony of this, of course, is that um, if we had true hearts and minds engaged, we'd all be able to harness the potential of all of us to resolve this in a much more sensible, better way. Exercising judgment, ensuring that we make decisions rationally about the collective good and also disciplining ourselves. Everyone demonstrated a remarkable ability to do that as it happens. And in spite of the attempts to sort of shame people who went to the park and a couple of people dancing in the street, for the most part, everyone has been really remarkable. And this is the thing for the contempt of ordinary people that I think there's an opportunity now in the same way that it happened with Brexit. But this is, I would say, in just such a much bigger way, there's an opportunity to say that actually you know, people are decent, that we have an ability to um, use our, our smarts and our judgment and ex exercise that. And we need to be able to do that. It's hugely important, the public influence on public on society and life. A couple of little things just to think about to finish off. When the Homeland Security and 9-11 happened and everything, people said that measures would be temporary. We're still taking our trainers off at the airport. If you ask, why am I doing this? You will be put in a corner and you'll be interrogated and you'll be treated as though you've done something terribly. These measures that we're imposing that are allegedly very short lived to that are temporary. Invariably, when these measures are passed, they have a detrimental effect ongoing. They take away their idea that we can be free and tackle challenges. Why is it one or the other? It should not be one or the other. It's not detached from the same attitude as well as the collapse of authority during the riots in Britain. They came down the streets and they said to us, you know, anecdotally, I'll share this with you. At the Vibe Bar, they said, we think you probably should shut the bar. Because, and we were like, no, we're not going to shut the bar because some people are rioting. Actually, we're going to keep open. And if they come here, actually, maybe they'll get dealt with. Now, the point is that the authority was lost by the people who had that authority. It was given away. They didn't know what to do. And in a way, we've had an abdication of leadership again. And it's all right. We can say, well, that's been the trend for a long time, zombie politics. But then that becomes, well, what's incumbent upon us to do? What are we, the people, going to do? How are we going to uh, uh, relate to this current situation? And what are we going to do? And that's why I've circulated these five reasonable demands and why I invite people to have a look at them. They're pretty much touching on all the issues we've raised today. Uh, it's uh, uh, looking at what the costs are of not looking at all of the risks and all of the costs. People, you know, final point, when I was, when I got involved with hospitality and nightlife and lobbying for it, people used to caricature, caricature us and say, well, it's about making money or getting drunk or whatever. And the point about it is, is that it's where our streets are lit up. It's where we come into human contact. It's where people fall in love. It's where new ideas are born and we're inspired. Let's not have a mechanical one-sided idea of the economy. If we wanted to talk about political economy and society and what that meant generally, all parts of it, 
that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about lockdowns, when we're talking about suffocating uh, our democratic rights and our freedoms. We're grown up, we're able to deal with really stark choices of having to deal with difficult things and disciplining ourselves, but we need the public engaged with that. We should not have that at the cost of dispensing with that. It will have massive consequences, both the financial, social and psychological uh, and democratic for many years to come. And that's why I invite everyone to get involved in recovery. Great, uh, thanks a lot uh, for that, Alan. And again, a lovely note to, to end on and think about what we could do differently. It's, I mean, aside from all the great points have been uh, made tonight and the way that this discussion has moved on, I think it really does um, highlight the importance of us all trying to recreate the one thing that's obviously been missing for such a long time, which is something like a genuine public sphere. We can have these discussions and people can make their points, but it's even clear from tonight, even though we've had such a good discussion, that there are plenty of people who, uh, on both sides of the argument, who struggle to say so they're convinced, everyone is convinced in some respect that it's the other side that's missing their points and not no possibility of the other way around. And it's incumbent on all of us to get out there and engage with people where we can, also not telling you to go and break the law, but it's incumbent on us to engage in the ways that we can to make sure that there is something resembling a genuine public debate, not just on Twitter and not just on Facebook or whatever, but a genuine discussion about the way forward. We at the Academy of Ideas will keep trying to do that. As I mentioned at the beginning, we do very much need your support. So please do head to academyofideas.org.uk slash donate. Donate monthly if you can, donate um, a cost of a pint that you won't be having uh, if you can't or, or whatever. Uh, we know it's a tough time for everyone, but we really appreciate the support. I just want to sort of finish. I won't, do, I won't abruptly end the call, but I, don't want to, I do want to finish by just saying thank you to everyone that come, especially thank you to our three speakers um, who made such excellent points. And thank you to everyone in the audience who sort of contributed to making this such a lively discussion. We look forward to seeing you at uh, Academy of Ideas event in the very near future. Um, but hopefully in the very near future too, we'll see you at a real life um, in-person debate. Um, thanks so much, uh, guys. I'll, that's all.